Now, friends, we come to the third chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, and the subject here is Christ is superior to Moses. We have seen that he's superior to the prophets, and we've just concluded the section where we've seen he's superior to angels. Now, having said that, in chapter 3, he begins, Wherefore? And this is another reason I feel Paul is the writer of this epistle. As we said when we were in the epistle to the Romans, Paul uses wherefore and therefore as a sort of a hinge or a cement to present that which is logical. Now, the wherefore is even more than that. The wherefore is to me like a hinge on a swinging door. It go back and forth both ways. Or it can be looked at as a marker when you come in on a freeway or come in on a main thoroughfare. The warning is look both ways. Look this way and that way. And wherefore looks back at what he's already said and looks forward to what he's going to say. So he begins with wherefore. Holy brethren, and I'm just taking these expressions up now as we come to them. Brethren would mean those that were Hebrews, like Paul. Paul was after the flesh, a Hebrew, and he called them his brethren after the flesh that were believers. And they're holy, not because of what they do, but because of the fact that The word actually means separated. They are separated unto God. They belong to him now. Holy brethren. And then he says, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, the nation Israel had an earthly calling. All the promises in the Old Testament to the nation Israel had to do with this earth. He promised them rain from heaven. He promised them the fertility of the soil, bountiful crops. And those blessings were physical blessings, although they are spiritual. Today, the idea that anything physical can't be used in a spiritual way is wrong. And that's one reason that people don't like to have money mentioned in church. Well, what's wrong with it? Money can be used in a spiritual way. It's not very impressive to hear somebody pray for something and then not back it up with their pocketbook. You're going to pray for missions... I would suggest you give to missions if you want to make your prayer effective because all that your prayer is is nothing in the world but just a lot of wind escaping. That's all. It's spiritual to give. That's one of the things that a priest does. Offers up spiritual sacrifices. Giving is one of them. Praise of our lips is something else too. Now, when we say here, partakers of the heavenly calling, these are the brethren that had an earthly calling, but they have come up to date. They belong now to the now generation of those of Israel that have turned to Christ. We've moved into a different age. The writer to the Hebrews is going to make that very clear to them, that to offer sacrifices yesterday in the past was according to the Mosaic system, and it was right. But now it's wrong because... It's all been fulfilled in Christ, and now you have a heavenly calling. The earthly calling hasn't disappeared, but 
the earthly calling now is then changed for the heavenly calling, so that they are partakers of the heavenly calling. That is something that several Jewish missionaries in Israel tried to make clear to us today in witnessing to a Jew. We give the impression that he's got to cease being a Jew. I don't know why we got in that habit, but we are in that habit. Man still be a Jew, be a child of God. He now has a heavenly calling. We don't cease being what we are when we become a child of God. If we are a German or an Englishman or a Frenchman or an Italian, we're still that. And nobody's asked us to give that up. And the Jew is still a Jew. He's now come to Christ. He's moved along with the revelation of God. And he's partaker now of the heavenly calling. That's important to see that the epistle to the Hebrews becomes almost meaningless if you don't consider the fact to whom it's written and when it was written. Someone sent me John Wycliffe's golden rule of interpretation. Now, John Wycliffe lived from 1324 to 1384. That was way back. And here was what he gave as the golden rule of interpretation, and I still think it's gold and not tarnished at all. Listen to it. It shall greatly help ye to understand Scripture if thou mark not only what is spoken or written, but of whom and to whom, with what words, at what time, where, to what intent, with what circumstances, considering what goeth before and what followeth. My friend, you can't improve on that one. If you'll just take that rule of John Wycliffe and apply it to Hebrews, I don't think we'll get in any trouble at all. Partakers of the heavenly calling, that would be perfectly meaningless apart from these Hebrew Christians. Now, notice what he says, "...consider the apostle and high priest of our profession..." And I'd like to change the word profession to confession, Christ Jesus. Now, the word for Christ is not in the better manuscripts. And I think that some of the newer translations have made that clear. For that reason, I'd like to read it like this now. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, that which we confess, Jesus. It's Jesus. Now, we're told to consider him. Now, this word here for consider is a very important word. It has in it the idea of the fact that we are to give faithful attention to this. We are to Consider this in the fact that we are to give time to it. Very frankly, this is a very important statement that we have you consider. Spend your time thinking about him. Consider him. It's a very significant word, and it's one that we ought to recognize that it means careful, careful thought, and serious attention. It is one that we should spend a little time with. Now, he says, consider the apostle. 
the Lord Jesus was an apostle. And that's in the very various meaning of the word. Now, what does it mean? I don't think we need to read anything into this word at all. After all, what is an apostle? It's one who's sent. Consider the apostle. He was sent from God to this world. He's God's messenger. He's the revelation of God. Consider him. Now, he comes from God to man as an apostle. But he says, consider the apostle and high priest. Now, that's going to be the subject of this epistle. And for the moment, the writer to the Hebrews will omit it. And then when he comes back to it, that's all he's going to talk about. And we'll have to wait till we get to the fifth chapter to see that. But let me say this at this point. We have a high priest. We're to consider him. And a high priest is going the opposite direction from an apostle. Now, an apostle is coming from God to man with a message. That was a prophet. The prophet spoke for God to man. But a high priest, he's going on the other side of the freeway in the opposite direction. He's coming from man to God. He represents man before God. Now, he is our high priest. He represents us before God. And who is he? It's Jesus. Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus, the emphasis is upon his humanity. Again, I want to say this. There's a man in the glory today, friend, and he represents us up there. I am very happy he's up there because we're told that he is an advocate for us. He defends us. He's on our side. He understands us. He understands me as no one understands me. I feel like sometime that when I talk to somebody and try to make something clear to them, I don't quite make it clear. I tried to explain to an audience some time ago the feeling I had when I was told I had cancer. And I saw, after I'd talked a couple of minutes, that I wasn't getting through it all. They didn't really understand my feeling. But you know, Jesus understands exactly how I felt, and he understands how you feel. And we're to consider this. We are to give serious thought to this, friends, and careful attention. We've got an apostle. He came from God, and he's our high priest. He went into God's presence for you and for me today. That's quite a wonderful verse, as you can see. Now he's going to show that he is superior to Moses. You see, having taken up the prophets who spoke for God in the Old Testament, and having shown his superior to angels, because they gave so much attention to that, now he must show that he's superior to Moses, because Moses is very important. Several years ago, they had a debate, that is, the rabbis did, over in Denver, Colorado. Who was the greatest, Abraham or Moses? And it's my understanding that Moses was the one that they finally decided was the greatest. Moses was greater even than Abraham. Moses was the greatest. Now, if Jesus is to be considered, he has to be superior to Moses. Now, he's going to show that. And how is Jesus superior to Moses? We're told here that the Lord Jesus was faithful to him that appointed him. The Lord Jesus was faithful as he came down to this earth to represent God to man, and he's faithful 
as he represents us to God. But Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now, whose house are we talking about here? By the way, that word house occurs seven times in the next six verses. It's very important to determine whose house we're talking about. Is it Moses' house? I don't think so. He's talking about God's house. Moses was faithful in his house, that is, in God's house. Moses was called to do a certain thing, and Moses was found faithful. Now, Moses made some mistakes and wrote about them. Several years ago, a liberal went around this country, and he talked about the mistakes of Moses. It was Ingersoll, I think, and some famous preacher followed him around. And he gave a message on the mistakes of Bob Ingersoll. Well, Moses did make mistakes, but not in writing the Pentateuch. But in the Pentateuch, he tells us about some mistakes that even Moses made. You know, he shouldn't have smitten that rock as much as he did. The fact of the matter is, he shouldn't have smitten it at all the second time. Once was enough, because that rock speaks of Christ, and God was protecting that type, that picture of Christ. He was smitten once for us. Moses lost his temper. He didn't know what he was doing, and he smote the rock twice. Moses made some mistakes, but isn't it wonderful here, now that Moses' life is all past, the thing that he was noted for, he was faithful, faithful to God. That's the thing the Lord Jesus, we're told, is going to commend his own for. That is, faithfulness. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Faithfulness. And I tell you, I don't care who he is, a man that's not faithful to the task that he's called to do. And I'm always suspicious of a preacher who is an assistant under a pastor and he's not faithful to him. I was holding meetings for a very wonderful preacher, and he doesn't play golf, but his assistant played golf. So his assistant took me out to play golf. And he took that opportunity to let me know he was very unfaithful, to tell the truth, to the pastor. He made little dirty digs, and he had a lot of things to say that he shouldn't have said. He should have been faithful to his pastor, the man he was working for. But he was disloyal to him. And so the next day he said to me, I've arranged for us to go out and play on a certain golf course. And I said, I'm sorry. I won't be able to go out today. And I never played with that man again. And the next time I went back to that church for a meeting, that man was gone. I asked the pastor about Oh, he said he got us in a lot of trouble here. I found out he was very disloyal. And I wondered at the time whether I shouldn't have told the pastor about it. I hate a disloyal preacher. <laughs> I have no use for one that's not faithful to the man that he's to serve. And I want to say today, and I know a lot of preachers are listening in. My friend, if you are not faithful to the man you're working in under, to begin with, if you can't be faithful to him, then you ought to leave. And if you're not faithful to him, you're not faithful to God. I can tell you that. You are not a man to be trusted. And I would never have trusted that assistant pastor under any circumstances. Now, the interesting thing, he wrote me after that and wanted me to recommend him to a church. I didn't recommend him. How can you recommend a man to be pastor when he was an assistant? He wasn't faithful. Moses was faithful. Moses was faithful. Wonderful to be faithful, friends. 
But wait just a minute. The interesting thing, the Lord Jesus Christ was faithful. All right, then, how is the Lord superior to Moses? Verse 3, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. How? Inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. Now, Moses was faithful in God's house, but the Lord Jesus is the one who built the house. You see, he's the creator. Moses is the creature. There is a difference, my friend. Now it says, verse 4, For every house is builded by some, and the word man is in italics, been built by someone. Can't have a house unless it just didn't grow, you see. For every house is builded by someone, but he that built all things is God. And the Lord Jesus is the Creator. He's God. Moses never made that claim. Now, will you notice, verse 5, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now, there's several things very important here. Not only is Christ superior to Moses in that he is the creator, and Moses is a creature, but also Moses, the best thing that could be said of him, he was a servant of God. Never is he called a son of God. Christ is the Son of God. And by the way, there is a difference between the son in the house and the servant in the house. All the difference in the world. So Christ is superior to Moses here on two counts. Christ is the creator, and he is the son. Now there's something else here that's very important to see. It says here, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Paul had a way of using ifs, not as a condition, but as a method of argument and of logic, by the way. I think what he's saying here is, since we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope to the end. In other words, if we are a son of God, if we are partakers of the heavenly calling, we will be faithful. We will hold fast. That's the proof of it. And you remember John put it like this over in 1 John 2:19. Let me read that. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, I have always believed that God has permitted the cults to come along to draw out of the churches those that are not really believers. That's one way he has a straining. The proof that you are a child of God is the fact that you're faithful to God and that you hold to the faith. That doesn't make you a child of God. That's the proof you are a child of God, my friend. And if you are a child of God, you will hold out, not because you are able to, but because he's able to make you stand, therefore. So what we have here is the if of argument that you are holding out. And 
that means you are partaker of the heavenly calling, you see. You are among the brethren. And if you're not, you're going to move out. That's the reason I always use the Bible sort of as a means of testing. When I was pastor of a church, I taught the Word of God. And when a person really is a child of God, he's going to hold to the Word of God. He's going to love the Word of God. He wants to hear his father talking to him. And I used it as a Geiger counter. You know, I just put it down on a fellow. You don't get any reaction. You're almost sure it's not a child of God. Oh, he may be a church member. We've got a lot of those around today. But my friend, it's your relationship to the Word of God. Are you faithful? That is the evidence. You are a child of God. Now, friends, one of the things that we should emphasize again is the fact that there is a comparison and really a contrast made between Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he says here concerning Moses is quite interesting. He doesn't find fault with Moses. fact of the matter is, he says Moses was faithful. There's no reference at all to failure, but rather to fidelity. Moses was found faithful. But Christ is faithful, we are told. So what is the difference? And the difference is this. The Lord Jesus is the creator of the house. Moses was a servant in the house. So that you have here the contrast between the son and a servant, between the creator and a creature, and between the one who is the ruler and the one who is obeying. Therefore, we are to consider the Lord Jesus because he's superior to Moses. Now, that can be carried through, and I'd like to pursue that just a little before we move down to verse 7 today. Both Moses and the Lord Jesus enunciated an ethical system. I think there is general agreement today, even among those that are outside the fold of Christ that would say that Moses gave the greatest legal system that has ever been given, and that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he enunciated a tremendous system of laws. But, friends, there's a tremendous difference in the two. You see, the laws which came from God through Moses they were laws that had to do with conduct. But when the Lord Jesus Christ gave what we call the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with those marvelous Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it doesn't have to do with conduct, it has to do with character. You see, the ethical demands of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, if you attempt to give them apart from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection on the cross, may I say to you, you present a hopeless system to man today. And I repeat it, the Sermon on the Mount, apart from the redemption we have in Christ, has made more hypocrites today in the church than anything else. This idea of teaching ethics and saying you keep the Sermon on the Mount. My friend, 
Only through the redemption in Christ can you even approach that. Therefore, God spoke through Moses, yonder on top of Mount Sinai, and there was thunder, and there was a cloud, and there was lightning, and there was terror, there was a tempest, there was an earthquake. You remember when we were in Exodus, we emphasized that, and he said to the people, stand afar off, don't even let the cattle come near. But God has spoken to us today, not that way. He's spoken to us from the top of a hill called Calvary. And on that hill, there was a cross. And on that cross, there was a broken, bruised, and dying man. And may I say, he was more than a man. But by that death upon the cross, there has flowed down to this world the grace of God. And I thank God he doesn't save us below if he did Vernon McGee would have to turn in his report and say, I failed, and that I'll have to look for another route. And thank God there is another route by the grace of God. So, my friend, Jesus is superior to Moses, and therefore we are asked to consider him. We are told here, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession or our confession, Jesus Consider him. And we're going to be asked to do that again. When we get over to the practical side, we're told, "...consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind." You see, you'd be a very discouraged person if all you had was a sermon on the mount. And I feel sorry for you if that's your religion. If that's all you've got, you are flying under false colors apart from the redemption of Christ. Now you're to consider him. Consider him in his person. Consider him in his performance, in his work upon the cross. And someone has put it like this, when the storm is raging high, when the tempest rends the sky, when my eyes with tears are dim, then my soul, consider him. When my plans are in the dust, when my dearest hopes are crushed, when is past each foolish whim, then, my soul, consider him. When with dearest friends I part, when deep sorrow fills my heart, when pain racks each weary limb, then, my soul, consider him. When I track my weary way, when fresh trails come each day, when my faith and hope are dim, then my soul, consider him. Clouds are sunshine, dark or bright, evening shades are morning light. When my cup flows o'er the brim, then my soul, consider him. We're to consider him in this epistle. Going to need the Spirit of God to make him real to us. Now, that brings us down to verse 7 here. And when we come to verse 7, we have come to the second danger signal. There is here the peril of doubting. And we need to consider this very carefully because, again, when we consider the ones to whom it was written and the circumstances, I think it'll be very meaningful for us today. 
Now, will you notice he concluded this section by saying, "...but Christ as a son over his own house." He's a son. He's the creator. He's not a creature, and he is not a servant. He is the Son of God. And whose house are we? We belong to this house today, the body of believers, the family of God, the household of faith. And he says, since we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing and the hope firm unto the end. Now, the proof that you're a child of God is to God. He knows your heart. He knows whether you're saved today or not. But if you're a child of God, you're going to be rejoicing in the hope firm unto the end, since you hold fast. And that's the reason today you can't tell whether a lot of the folk that are in our churches are saved or not. They sure don't act like it. Some of them look like and act like they've been weaned on a dill pickle. They're not very joyful about things. Now, at verse 7 here, we come, therefore, to this second danger signal. And I tell you, he's taken us to the heights. And we want to beware. We want to note this. He says, wherefore. Now, we've got another wherefore here. This is a chapter full of wherefores. It opens with verse 1, wherefore. Verse 7 here is wherefore. And then when you get down to verse 10, we're going to wherefore again. This is a very important word. We said it is a swinging door that swings into the past, swings into the future. It's a danger signal as you come to the great highway that leads to heaven. It says, look both ways before you pull out. Some crazy driver may be coming down on the wrong side of the freeway, and you better watch out for him. Wherefore? As the Holy Spirit saith, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of testing or temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Now, we've come here to a very important portion of the Word of God. He says now, wherefore, in view of what he's already said, if the word spoken by Moses and by the prophets was so important, well, what about the word spoken by Jesus? Therefore, we need to be very careful about doubting him. Now, wherefore, the Holy Spirit saith today, today, if you'll hear his voice. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 95, beginning at verse 7. And let's look at it. Now, we've been over the Psalms, and we've said very definitely that we believe Christ is in every Psalm. I don't say I can find him in every Psalm. You want to know the truth? I can't. But you can sure find him in a great many of them. And this one here is a very important Psalm, therefore. Psalm 95, verse 7, "...for he's our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and proved me and saw my work 
Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It's a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Now we have here the interpretation of this particular psalm. Israel is given to us as an example. And I want to spend just a few moments looking at this. They doubted God, and because they doubted God, they never entered the land of Canaan. That refers to those that came out of the land of Egypt. Now, this passage closed with the little word, rest. They shall not enter into my rest. And you're going to find, I've marked it in my Bible, I think that there's at least a dozen references in this chapter and the next chapter to the word rest. Now, the word rest in this section here doesn't always mean the same kind of rest. There is the rest of salvation, and we are going to see that. And that's what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, "'Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll rest you.'" That is, he'd lift the burden of sin from you if you'd come to him because he bore it for us on the cross, and our sins are forgiven. We have redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of sins, Paul said. And therefore, you don't have to do anything to cause God to forgive you because he's already done that when Christ died. All you've got to do is accept him. All you have to do is to believe him. Now, these people here knew the rest of redemption. They're no longer slaves in Egypt. They came out by blood. Blood on the doorposts. They came out by power. God brought them across the Red Sea. God delivered them. They know what the rest of redemption is now. But the Lord Jesus went on to say, when he talked about to come unto him for rest, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you shall find rest for your souls. That's a different kind of rest. Now, that's not the rest of redemption. Actually, I'd call it the rest of obedience, the rest of the enjoyment of your Christian life. The children of Israel, they came out of the land of Egypt. And when they crossed over, they sang the song of Moses and Jehovah. Jehovah is a man of war. He delivered us. Is great. But now they come up, actually, a 12 days journey. They could have gotten in the promised land. But you know what happened? They came up to that land. They sent in spies. That wasn't necessary. God told them, I'll take care of you. Just believe me and go on in. But he yielded to them. If you need a little extra proof, God will give it to you. So he let them send in spies. But these spies, they didn't see the wonderful land. All they saw were giants. And they saw themselves as grasshoppers. But they didn't see God. And they came back and gave them a false report, except Caleb and Joshua. And they said, we can take the land. Old Caleb said, we'll be able to take care of those giants. So that these people sent in spies, and they wasted 40 days until the spies came back, and then they wouldn't accept Joshua and Caleb. 
they took the report of the majority of the committee, and that's my reason for believing that committees are not satisfactory to do the Lord's work. And therefore, they went into the wilderness. And for every day those spies were in the land, they spent a year in the wilderness. Forty years they spent in the wilderness. Now, the point is this. They didn't believe God enough to enter into the land. They believed enough to come out of Egypt, but not enough to enter into the land. What did they need to do? Well, God says this generation that put up the excuse of their children, they're not going to enter. Their bones are going to lie out here in this wilderness. That's where they're going to be buried. But I'm going to bring their children into the land. So we'll find out later on Joshua brought them into the land of Canaan. And how did he do it? Well, he sent the ark down ahead. Christ has gone ahead of us down to the Jordan River. They're going to cross now another body of water. And it's a flood state. And so the ark is brought down by the priests. The people are far off. And then the waters of the Jordan were cut off right there, way back up, all the way to Adam. I don't think that's the name of place. I think that's the name of the first man that sinned. All the way back. Then they took 12 stones out of the river where these men stood and put them over on the other shore where they were going on the side of the promised land. Then they took 12 stones from over there and they put them down in the Jordan River. Now, those 12 stones in the Jordan River, when that water went back over it, that speaks of the death of Christ. Those stones taken out of the river and put on the other side as a monument speaks of the resurrection of Christ. Friends, you and I never enter into that Canaan rest of obedience to God and of enjoying the fruits of the Christian life until we enter in through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul meant. In Romans, when he begins to talk about we are buried with him in baptism, raised with him in newness of life, we're now joined to a living Christ, and that's the only way we're going to enjoy Canaan. Now, Canaan's not heaven. We're going to find out that there's an eternal rest, and Jesus gives that rest. But today, the question is, have you entered into the rest that believers are to have? Are you a rejoicing Christian today? Well, you'll find out that the only way to do it is to come to the Word of God, is to believe the Word of God and study the Word of God. How many Christians, how many church members today really study the Word of God? Well, my friends, we're going to be told in this passage of Scripture that the Word of God is quick and powerful. Now, that primarily refers to the Lord Jesus. It refers to the written Word, too. Therefore, the only way you and I can stay close to him is to stay close to the Word of God. And the only way that you and I can enjoy the grapes of Eschol and the fruits of the land and the beauty of it and the enjoyment of it is by studying the Word of God. That's the reason we're spending time in the Word of God. And the reason I read letters from people that say for the first time they found out what the joy of the Lord is. Being a Christian's been like a yoke on them. Being a church member, all they know about is they are browbeaten to give money and to do certain things, or the Lord will be terribly displeased with them, and everything is a duty instead of being drawn to the person of Christ. Now, he says here, therefore, today if you'll hear his voice. For it's too late, Christian friend. 
start enjoying him. Pass over into Canaan by faith. Now, let me pick up here again with verse 10. We got another wherefore here. The door's swinging back and forth. And before we pull out on the freeway of salvation, the freeway that is the way, the truth, and the life, even Christ, let's look both ways. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they've not mown my ways. Now, where did they err? In their mind? No, in their hearts. Now, hold that for just a moment. This generation back there that came out of Egypt are given to the believers in apostolic days, the believers that are Hebrew believers, as a warning to them not to do the same thing, and there was a danger of them doing that thing. Now, it has a message for us. We have the same danger, by the way. And the danger is erring in our hearts. Now, God says, so I swear in my wrath. That's not necessary for God to take an oath, but he does. They shall not enter into my rest. God says, because of unbelief, that generation shall not enter in. And my friend, until you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, not only to accept him as your Savior, but to walk with him by faith, to commit your life to him. You're not going to know anything in the world about the joys of Canaan. And that's the reason we have so many restless people today in our churches. They are wilderness Christians. And the wilderness is the place of death. It's the place of unrest. It's a place of aimlessness. And it's a place of dissatisfaction. These were the people out there in the wilderness. God says, they're not going to know what rest is. And there are a lot of believers today, they don't know what rest really means. They've never entered into it at all. And you enter in by faith. Now listen to him. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now somebody's going to say, could that be true of a believer? Sure could. You know, the sin here is not the sin of murder. It's not the sin of lying or stealing. It's the sin of unbelief. And that, may I say to you, is I think very important for us to see today. The sin of unbelief. Who was it God was angry with? Well, they sinned. Well, what did they do? Well, they didn't murder they didn't steal. They didn't lie. What was it? They didn't believe God, friends. That was the great sin. And their attitude was, well, God says today. Now listen to him. Verse 12, "...take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily." And we ought to exhort one another daily. We ought to encourage one another while it's called today. And God says today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this has definite meaning of entering into our blessings as believers. But actually, it's unbelief of the heart that today is robbing people of salvation. 
But he said, well, what about these problems that men in the world have? They say, well, I have certain problems. I have certain intellectual problems. Now, I don't want to be ugly, but you don't have any intellectual problems. You say, now, wait a minute. How about that story of Jonah? How about that story of Noah? I have problems with it. I recall that several years ago, and if I may use this homely illustration, when we were having our Bible class in downtown Los Angeles, when over a period of 21 years we saw 1,500, 2,500 people come in every Thursday night. And what a thrill it was. That was always a great thrill to me. Well, one evening, a broker was in downtown Los Angeles, and he was a very fine man in many ways. I mean, if you'd met him, you would have said, my, Mr. So-and-so is certainly a fine man. Well, he worked late one evening on a Thursday evening, and when he started home, he saw this big crowd coming into the church there. And my, they all had Bibles, and they looked like they were interested And so he followed them in. He said, what in the world's going on in a church in the middle of the week? I never heard of anything like it. So he went in and sat down. He stayed through the service. And after he came up to me, he said to me, one of the first things he said, he said, all you did was teach the Bible. Is that what brings people in? I said, I think so. That's all we do here. Well, the fact of the matter is the man continued to come on Thursday nights. Then he started coming on Sunday. And he got under real conviction. So one day he came to me, and in fact, he called me up before the Thursday night Bible study. He said, could I come by and see you? And I said, sure. So he came in, and he says, you know, I thought I was a Christian. I know I'm not now, although I'm a member of a church. But he says, I have a few intellectual problems. I said, you do? Well, what are they? And he said, well, that story, Jonah. And he said, you know, it's just impossible for me to believe a man could live three days and three nights inside of a fish. And I said to him, well, who told you a man lived three days and three nights? He said, doesn't the Bible say it? He said, I've heard every preacher say that. Well, I said, my Bible doesn't say that. Oh, he says it doesn't. So I turned to the book of Jonah, and I said, you know, Jonah was dead three days and three nights, because the Lord Jesus said, as Jonah was in the fish, that's the way the Son of Man is going to be. And he was dead. Now, I said, if you're going to have trouble with the resurrection of Jonah, but that's what you have, then you'd have trouble with the resurrection of Jesus. Well, he says, you know, I didn't know that it was that way. Well, he said, that's no problem for me at all. I said to him, did you have another intellectual problem? Well, he said, maybe I don't. I said to him, and I looked him right straight in the eye, and I said, what sin is there in your life that's keeping you from Christ? And he got red up to, well, up to the top of his head because he's partially bald And he said, has somebody been telling you about me? And I said, no. I just know that your intellectual problem is a heart problem. And he said, well, what do you mean? Well, I said, it's not an intellectual problem. It's keeping you from Christ. There's something in your life that's keeping you from Christ. And then he broke down. In fact, 
he wept. And he says to me, I am paying the rent for my secretary's apartment. And I spend a great deal of time out there. And I said, does your wife know about it? He said, no. I don't think anybody knows about it. He said, I think I've kept it pretty much a secret. Well, I said, then that's your problem, isn't it? You wouldn't want to give up your secretary for Christ, would you? He looked at me. He says, yes, I do. And you know, that man said, I'm going to stop the rent and I'll talk to her tomorrow. And he not only talked to her the next day, he fired her. And she threatened to talk, but after all, she didn't want to talk either. And he got down on his knees that very day in my office. He accepted Christ as his Savior. Friends, I've learned a long time ago, because I've been a preacher a long time, that people really don't have intellectual problems. They sure do have sin problems. Now I'd like to turn to a passage of Scripture. And I'm going to read this passage to you because I want you to see something. And it has to do with Moses. It's Second Corinthians, the third chapter, beginning with verse 6. And I'm reading now. "...who also hath made us able ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life." Now, the law condemns you, you know. But only the Holy Spirit can give us life. Now, he goes on. "...but if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones..." You see, that was the Ten Commandments. It was glorious. Paul's not saying it wasn't glorious. It was. "...so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away." Now, that glory was to disappear. Now, he goes on. I'll drop down to verse 11. "...for if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious." In other words, he's making a contrast here. The glory of the law. Actually, Moses' face shone when he came down. There was a glory in the law. Now, it's more glorious what we have in Christ. Now he goes on. "...seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, he put a veil on his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end that which is abolished." Now, Moses didn't put the veil on his face as a dimmer to dim the glory. That's the general interpretation. What he did was that glory was disappearing. Every morning when Moses got up, it was going. And he put a veil over his face so they wouldn't know about that, you see. The glory of that was disappearing. But there's another glory now, and that's the glory that's in Christ. And now he says, verse 14, "...but their minds were blinded." Now, notice, their mind was blinded. Actually, they do talk about intellectual problems, but that's not the problem. "...for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart." Now, the problem with man is not the intellectual. The problem is the heart problem, the sin question. And it's sin, and I say this now very candidly because there'll be multitudes listening, 
I do not know who you are, but in this great company today, there will be some folk that have actually not come to Christ. And the thing that's keeping you from Christ is not intellectual. There is sin in your life, and you do not want to give it up. That's your problem. That's your difficulty. The minute that your heart is ready to give it up, that very moment your problems will dissolve. He'll take the veil away from your mind, and you can come to Christ and be saved. Now listen, nevertheless, I'm reading verse 16, nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord. What? The heart. That's the problem. The veil shall be taken away. The veil from the mind will be removed when your heart turns to Christ. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Well, the Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit today, will move into your life and make Him real, as He's doing to multitudes today, and He'll do it for you. But, my friend, as long as you hold on to that sin in your life, you may not be keeping a secretary and not saying anything about it. But I don't care what it is. Why, the sin in your life, that's what's keeping you for Christ. Now, when you come to him, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, if you turn to him, oh, my friend, the future that will await you and how you can grow in grace and in the knowledge of him. Now, will you notice again, he says here, "...exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin." Now, you can just go on and on in all of this, you see. And actually, today, a believer can come to the place that he believes that his life is satisfactory to God, and he's leading a wilderness life. He can be dishonest. I hear this today. Well, you know, my conscience doesn't condemn you. That may be the most tragic statement that you could make, that your conscience does not condemn you. And there are a great many Christians today, if their conscience doesn't condemn them, they sure ought to condemn their conscience, because it needs condemning. It's hardened. You're hardened. You can go on in that. And I know today men that are on church boards and men in the ministry, and I'm not giving you hearsay now. And those men have been totally dishonest. They have been found out to be liars, and they actually can get down on their knees and pray the most pious prayer you've ever heard in your life. And their conscience does not condemn them. Of course it doesn't condemn them because they are permitting sin in their lives. My friend, your problem today is a sin problem. And I don't care who you are. Your problem is a sin problem. Now, let's read on here. Say, this begins to step on our toes, does it not? And he goes way back to get Israel, applies it to Hebrew believers in the first century, and here the Spirit of God is stepping on our toes today. You see, if you put Scripture and interpret it to the ones it's written to, that's interpretation. Then, my friend, the Spirit of God can apply it to our hearts, and only He can do that.
Now will you listen to him? Verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ. Just think of that. We're in Christ. He belongs to us. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, if you would ask me today, what is the great sin in your life, preacher? What is it that's held you back more than anything else? I'll tell you what it is. I don't mind making the confession. Unbelief. Oh, if I'd only believed God. I go back in my ministry, and I'll be honest with you. I didn't believe God like I should. You want to know something? Let me bring it up today. If you had have asked me, McGee, when you retire, God is going to open up a door in radio for you. That's going to be the greatest part of your ministry, the greatest ministry you ever had in the future. You know what I would have done? I'd have laughed at you. You know why? Because I wouldn't believe it. I didn't believe it. That's my problem. Maybe it's your problem. I want to believe God. And if there's one thing today, I want above everything else. I want to believe God. I want to trust Him. I want to commit my life to Christ. Oh, if I could just turn it over to Him. And I had a little victory while I was gone on this trip. We came back. We flew from London to Los Angeles. That's about an 11-hour flight. And ours was a little longer. We had a headwind. And we had cloud cover till we got over Greenland. And then when we got over Greenland, we could look down and we could see these icebergs. And I want to tell you, you may think they're pretty when you see them in a picture. But when you're up at about 38,000 feet above them looking down at them, they don't look pretty to me. They look cold. They look foreboding. And then there was a glacier there on the coast of Labrador coming down between two mountains and coming right down to the water's edge. I want to tell you, I look down there, and ordinarily I'm frightened when I fly. I'll be honest with you. But you want to know something. I prayed right there. I said, Lord, you know, I trust you when I'm on the ground. <laughs> but I had difficulty trusting you up here. Now, I said, I'm in the place right now where I need to trust you. And I just want you to give me that kind of faith that I look at this tremendous 747 and those four motors out there, and I looked out at them there going, and I thank God for that. But I said, oh, God, help me to put all my weight down in your arms and just rest in you. Now, I want to tell you something. The first time in my life, and I have flown thousands of miles, first time in my life, I went to sleep. <laughs> I went to sleep. I never did that before. I had to stay awake to help the captain of the ship in case he needed a little help. But I went to sleep and left it all to the captain and to the Lord. I left it really to the captain of my salvation. And you know, when that plane, great big old plane, was coming in for a land in Los Angeles, I said, Lord, thank you for the little victories. I got a little victory. Maybe it wasn't much for you, but it sure was a whole lot for me. What a wonderful passage of Scripture this is. Friends, what a message it has. Oh, that you and I might trust God. Now, let me begin reading here at verse 16. 
for some, when they had heard, did provoke, albeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Now, what you have here in this little word provoke is that God was highly displeased with them because they had heard, but they did not believe. But they all came out of Egypt. They had faith enough for that. But verse 17 says, But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Now, what was their sin? Well, the sin was unbelief. We do not recognize that as such a serious sin today. This matter of doubting God and doubting his word, that is one of the worst sins because actually it leads to the other sin. These people, it led to calf worship and it led to fornication. It led to absolute denial of God, turning their backs upon him, wanting to go back to Egypt even. Well, they actually thought the slavery of Egypt was better than walking by faith into the promised land. Now, there are a great many Christians today that still walk after the world, and they do not know what it is really to trust Christ and to walk in complete faith and trust of him. Now, will you notice this? He asks a question, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Well, this crowd came out of Egypt. Was it not with them that had sinned? And who'd sinned? All the crowd came out of Egypt. Because all those that came out of Egypt, he says here, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness. Well, all that crowd that came out of Egypt, with the exception of Joshua, Caleb, and they were the only two that made it into the land. Even Moses didn't make it into the land, but his was actual disobedience of God also. But it was not, I don't think, a lack of faith, but it was angry with the children of Israel. But he shouldn't have done what he did, smite the rock twice. In fact, he shouldn't have smitten it again at all, because it had already been smitten. And that rock speaks of Christ. Now, verse 18 and to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, that is, the rest of Canaan. And he's not talking about heaven, because they did enter into that, finally. I mean by that, they all died in the wilderness, and they knew nothing about walking in Canaan and enjoying its fruits and finding satisfaction in just believing God. And he said, you'll not enter into my rest. And he took an oath on that. And believe me, God doesn't have to do that. But when he does, well, he really means business. And who was it? It was those that didn't believe. It wasn't that they worshiped the calf. It wasn't that they committed fornication. Those are not the sins that kept them from blessing. The sin that kept them from blessing was unbelief. And it not only robs us of blessings but it also leads to other sins. Now, you hear a great many people today that are believers, at least you think they're believers, and they say, well, I did this stupid thing. That's what a man said to me. I did this stupid thing, and I'm a Christian. Well, it was actually a dishonest thing that he did. 
Well, what was his problem? He was so concerned about that dishonest thing he did. He didn't believe God, and that didn't seem to disturb him, because it's the sin of unbelief. Now we read here, verse 19, and may I say, here's a verse you can underline. Every believer today, all of you underline this verse, verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And you can say that that's what's robbing you and me of many blessings today. Unbelief.